Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, no overproduced introduction, no BS to wait through, just talking Mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number 11 of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning. If you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, any of the past issues in this series, stop listening now and just go read the books. I promise that I'm going to spoil this issue and parts of past issues from Hero Discovered and Hero Defined and Denied completely and totally. All right, some quick show notes. First of all, hey, it's great having everybody listen. Somebody out there, I was taking a look at stats, somebody out there in Central Islip, New York, and somebody in Brentwood, California, your podcast apps are going crazy. I'm seeing something like thousands of downloads of the same episode coming out of those two locations, and as much as I'd love to to think that I'm just taking over those cities with rabid mage fans, I've got a feeling that somebody's app is on the fritz and maybe partially downloads the episode over and over and over again. Just thought I'd let you know something might be going on with uh, somebody's podcast listeners, podcast clients out there. Now, the other thing I'd want to cover is that uh, Instagram has been my chosen area to post episode-related pics as well as mage cosplay pics, random sketches by Matt Wagner, color swatch posts by Brennan Wagner, and frankly, any other stuff that just happens to catch my eye or amuses me. Right now, I would guess that about 98% of the just over 300 posts are mage or Matt Wagner-focused, with a few random foodie photos, and some other comic geek-out stuff thrown in there. Now, I've been trying to use a program to place Instagram posts tied to specific issues into the website, and it's not working so well. When I post images from newer issues onto Instagram, I really don't want to spoil the story for anyone who hasn't read the issue yet, so I tend to cover them with a shot of the issue's cover, and some kind of message on it about, as mentioned in episode whatever, may contain spoilers. And then under that photo is the actual image that I'm sharing. Now this works great on the mobile app, it works pretty easily on desktop, but these plugins, these programs, do not know how to deal with it. So right now the on-site galleries that show Instagram all show the same image, the spoiler warning cover message. 10 or 13 times, depending on the episode that you might be looking at. I I know it's happening. My apologies if it's annoying. I'm going to try to find some time to fix it, but really, I'd recommend just visit Mage Hero Described on Instagram and follow there. Also, I've just posted an article titled, Eight Reasons You Should Be Reading Matt Wagner's Mage. Now, I may turn this into a standalone podcast episode as well. I reached out to comic professionals, reviewers, fans of Mage, and asked them to answer one question. What would you tell someone if you were recommending that they read Mage? Why should they read it? 
Some of the respondents' names you'll know. The amazing creator-artist John K. Snyder III, who was the inspiration for the character John J. Strider, or Prester John, in Mage the Hero Defined, was kind enough to share his thoughts. You'll also hear from Eli and Manis from the Can I Thwip It podcast, writer and comic and book reviewer Michael Penkus, who has put up some amazing reviews of The Hero Denied at Blackgate, Jen Delari, the creator of the webcomics A Wish for Wings and Closet Space, and quite a few more. Now, contributors, if you're listening and you didn't get mentioned by name, let me take this moment to thank you all for taking time to respond and share your thoughts. Again, that article can be found at magetheherodescribed.com. Later in this episode, I will share some of their answers to some bonus questions that I posed to them as well. And I'll also share the audio feedback from one fan, CW Balance. Listen, we're in the final stretch here. The last four issues coming up, and Mage is done, finished, finito. There's no more waiting, which is great, but also (laughs) there's going to be no more Mage, no more promise of Mage, and that's going to suck. No more Mirage shimmering in the distance. And frankly, the series, as near as I can tell, has been flying under the radar way too much after the initial press coverage died down. So here's my request to you. Go read the article at MajorTheHeroDescribed.com and share it with your friends with a note telling them why you think they should read it. Post it on your Instagram, your Facebook, send it an email, whatever. Send a telegraph. I don't care. Lend them the hero discovered, whatever it takes. After this, Mage is in the rearview mirror. It's an amazing piece of comic writing, comic art, and comic history, but it won't really be in a position to garner buzz and new readers quite like right now as the final part of the trilogy comes to a close. Again, I imagine there will be some coverage when issue 15 comes out, but that's it. So spread the word, share the magic. Uh, A large part of reaching out to all of these people to write this article was really to give you, the fans, you other fans, a, uh, a way, a reason Uh, an easy way to introduce others to the series. All right, on to the episode. Uh, First of all, issue number 11. I love this cover. Um, Granted, it really lets you pour whatever you want into it. The dark forest at night, the shades of green that evoke both the color of magic, the green color of magic, as well as Kevin's personal tie to that color. Green stuff, life, nature... Now, you may remember Kevin and the rest of his roundtable discussing the color of magic in Hero Defined, and if you don't, well, check out, uh, I don't know, podcast episode two or four about the color of magic in the mage universe. And, of course, on this cover, there are those Wagner silhouettes of Kevin and Miranda holding hands as they make their way into the dark forest, their logos standing out. I am just wild about this cover. Anyway, I'm going to jump around in the narrative a little bit in this issue, but at a certain point I'm going to stay with some characters throughout all their actions and then follow up on other characters instead of just 
following the scene jumps as they occur in the comic. This will just let me stick with the narrative flow of the characters and the events a little bit better for discussing what happens in this issue. This issue opens with a great panel of Magda's new familiar, Cleo, flying up the red-walled endless pit in the Archeron headquarters. Now, apparently there's a pecking order in the building, and fairies of Cleo's status aren't allowed at the higher levels, or maybe it's the lower levels. In Hero Discovered, you had to make your way down from the top of the building on the outside in order to actually reach the top of the building on the inside. Everything is topsy-turvy inside of these places. It makes no sense. And this issue is an interesting reversal of the events in Hero Discovered issues 10 and 11, in which Kevin, Edsel, and Sean enter the Styx Hotel and Casino in search of clues and information about their enemies. Of course, in this case, Magda and Hugo are trapped inside and seeking to break out. And similar to those issues, the Endless Red Pit plays a central role in this issue with unique otherworldly dangers threatening our heroes. Now, if you'll recall a few issues back, Hugo ignored his mother's warnings and succumbed to the tempting fairy food feast, eating a huge hunk of cake. As I discussed in a past episode, the risks and dangers of eating fairy food are dire. One of those dangers, which Magda had warned her son, was uh, eating fairy food would trap a human in the fairy realm. So, while these two are looking to break out, I can't help but wonder if that warning ever occurs to Hugo, and what's going to happen when and if he's presented with the opportunity to exit the Archeron headquarters and cannot. More importantly, what fairy realm fate awaits him? What bargain perhaps might be struck to gain his freedom? What does that one decision in the big scheme of things really mean for uh, Hugo Hunter, Hugo Matchstick? I'm presuming, of course, that the family has gone under the Hunter name since the uh, early on in this series, the Umbra Sprite and the Gracklethorns were not able to find any Kevin Matchstick. I'm pretty sure that he had to take Magda's last name. Anyway, I'm leaping far ahead of the events that take place in this issue and into, frankly, pure speculation with all of this. Cleo, the wild, purple, bat-winged kitty familiar, discovers a familiar-looking plank emerging from a doorway. Now, this could be the same plank upon which the Umbra Sprite and Gracklethorn stood when they tested the Fisher King candidates in an earlier issue. What lies beyond the door in the wall? Perhaps it's even the Umbra Sprite's office? Or it could just be some random hallway inside the building. Meanwhile, Magda has been very busy, having enchanted all the everyday items she had collected in the last issue. What we see at this point is a hairdryer that fires a big magic blast, light bulbs that do the same on a smaller scale, she says they're good for stunning enemies and threats, and hats of invisibility that, it, it's worth remembering, will make Hugo and Magda invisible to each other as well. And then there are some magic shoes, those black chucks high tops we saw in the last issue, to which Magda has added white lightning bolts to match Kevin's black high tops from The Hero Defined. Now, in a movie, this might be called an Easter egg or a fan service, but fuck it, call it whatever you want. It is just cool to see 
those iconic lightning bolt high tops again and in use. So what do they do? These shoes let you go all Spider-Man, walk on the walls, walk on ceilings. Just, um, if you do that, just be sure you lace them really tight. And we get this fun panel of Hugo walking on the walls of the suite, and his word bubbles change orientation to match his movement. They're sideways, they're diagonal, and even upside down. And this panel is made even more effective with an inset panel of Hugo and his mom talking. Her word bubbles are right side up. His word bubbles um, and uh, balloons are, of course, uh, upside down. Just another visual storytelling gem from this series. At this point, Cleo returns to tell Magda about the platform and the doorway. They are a mile away. Now, this might not sound like it's too far away, but that distance is an excellent way to illustrate illustrate just how warped space is inside this place. Let's just look at how many stories in a building equal one mile. Consider the Sears Tower. The Sears Tower has 110 stories, and that's counting the main roof and what they call the mechanical penthouse roof. It is 1,400 and 50 feet tall. Now, let's say that each story is on average about 13 feet tall. At that story height, it would take about 400 stories to equal a mile, which is 5,280 feet, or just over three and a half Sears Towers. Now, obviously, when viewed from the outside, the Archeron is not nearly that tall. Like I said, this place is batshit crazy inside. Okay, at this point, as uh, Hugo and Magda are getting ready to uh, to brace the pit, we switch to Kevin and Miranda, who are staying at the Cascade Lodge Motel. And Miranda's sleeping, Kevin is trying to reach Magda through the scrying glass, and I think this is one of the first times we get to hear some of the thoughts and emotions going on inside him. He tells uh, Magda how brave Miranda has been, how he misses her and Hugo so much, hoping she's able to, to break free, and that he's coming for them. And these two final frames on page five say so much with Kevin's expressions. In the next-to-last frame, we see Kevin's face up close, straight on, It's tightly cropped in on his eyes, and as he finishes attempted magical phone call, Kevin says, everything's going to be okay, with a break in his voice and a tear starting to form at the edge of his right eye. And in the next frame, we're pulled back so we can see Kevin's in the truck now, he's driving. We have another straight-on view of his face, but his expression is fixed. It's determined, and... You've got that matchstick scowl on his face. Again, it's just really a really nice way to to kind of show two emotional states um, and and give us an idea of what's going on inside of him as we go from one panel to another. And that scowl has been has been getting a workout lately. I am really tempted to go back to find out how many times we actually get to see Kevin smile in this series. I mean, I get it. This isn't Mage the Hero delighted. Bad shit goes down. This is not happy, smiley stuff. Still, it'll be nice to see this guy smile a little more. I've got a feeling 
those are going to be fewer and far between. But uh, hey, as long as Miranda's with him, maybe uh, maybe that'll help keep his spirits up as they as they go through this. As Kevin and Miranda drive through the Mount Hood National Forest, now this is a big forest. It's about 62 miles east of Portland. We have to figure that not too much time has passed since the showdown between Kevin and the Yowler Ogre. I mean, I'm figuring that this is nighttime of the fourth day since the shit hit the fan. Because 62 miles or so from where they started out isn't very far. Not in four days. But Kevin and Miranda haven't exactly been moving in a straight line from point A to point B. And at this moment, they really don't even have a point B to go to. Let's walk through this. Kevin goes after the questing beast with his magic eye drops, forgets to go to the PTA function with Magda. In fact, uh, the magic eye drops have the unfortunate side effect of making him sick and then pass out until the next morning. That same night, at the aforementioned PTA event, Magda encounters an incubus and ultimately ends up getting delivered to the Umbra Sprite and Gracklethorns. I mean, heck, let's figure she gets abducted around 9 p.m. or so. They probably have her by midnight that same evening. This should be no problem, since according to Carol, the 10-hour trip from San Francisco to Portland takes only about two hours traveling through the Misty Realms. That gives them plenty of time to arrange for a group of redcaps to kidnap Hugo on a school bus that next morning. And, right after that, Kevin battles the Yowler Ogre and finds Miranda amid the ruins of their house. Now, this happens first thing in the morning. The morning after the initial abduction. In issue number nine, we see Kevin go shopping, drive... Well, we don't see him go shopping, but he's gone shopping drives into the Misty Realms, and goes to kick some red-cap butt. Then, when he visits Isis, he mentions that the abduction happened a couple days ago. So let's say day one, recovery, shopping trip, getting a lead on the red-caps. Day two, the showdown with the red-caps. Uh, day three, the visit to Isis. Day four, Kevin and Miranda visit the beach and recover the Moreau's Cloak of Concealment. And I think given Miranda's comment about staying at the hotel and Kevin's reply that it was just a rest stop, this scene at the Mount Hood National Forest, I think, is later that evening after they've had a chance to get a bite to eat, then rest, and get back on the road that same evening. I think that timing would work well for Magda and Hugo's activities as well. A few days to get settled into their posh prison for Magda to begin assembling her arsenal, and for Hugo to get bored enough with the limited television options that he has plenty of time to make some observations about the unending pit. As they're driving through the forest, Miranda's role right here is a little bit Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Like Hamlet's ill-fated college chums, she's pretty much feeding Kevin his lines so we can find out his plans. Typically, this might be covered in a narrative panel, but those don't exist in Mage. Neither do Thought Balloons. So, thanks to Miranda, we get to find out what Kevin is up to. Prompted by Miranda, we find out that Kevin plans to search for help in the Fairy Realms. Not the Dark Misty Realms, 
Kevin is looking for a way into the pure green magic realms, where Mirth took him to recover from his deadly wounds in Hero Discovered, and which he revisited briefly in Hero Defined. He's hoping to find someone there who can help them. And it's I'm sure that he is alluding to Mirth. No doubt he is really hoping to find Mirth. But he adds, it's dangerous. It's so beautiful and enchanting that it makes you never want to leave. There's just one problem. He doesn't know how to get there. Now, as I discussed in a past episode dedicated to the color of magic and mage, green, according to Mirth, is the color of pure, unadulterated magic. Mirth's use of magic as the world mage was bright green because he was positioned at the headwaters, dipping in and using pure magic. The color of magic, however, changes based on the person using it. In the case of our heroes in the Hero Defined, Kirby Hero associated magic as the color red, wild and ferocious, like blood and fire. Joe Fat says he kind of thought it was blue, like the sky and the sea. Wally Utt associates magic with purple, the color of passion. Now, Kevin insists that magic is green, like growing things, life, nature, and although all the heroes clearly have had a different experience during their shared vision in The Hero Defined, he does have it on pretty good authority that the pure source is green. I will point out that as things come to a head and uh, and close in The Hero Defined, Waliat does tell Kevin to forget what Mirth told him. Mirth told him what he needed to tell him, and that the color of magic doesn't matter. Magic is, isn't is a specific color. Magic is is color. Anyways, I mention this because when Kevin tells Miranda that the place they're going to is green, I have to wonder if that will in fact be her experience of what Kevin calls the green realms. Maybe they won't be green at all. Or maybe as Kevin's daughter she will be similarly attuned in her perception and experience. Anyway, as Kevin is going on, Miranda suddenly shouts for him to look out, and Kevin breaks to a sudden halt, just in time to avoid hitting the questing beast that is run directly across their path. Kevin is briefly astonished as he recognizes the beast, but the magistric scowl of determination is back in place on the next frame as he determines that he was wrong about the beast, it's not going to lead him to the Fisher King. It's going to lead him to the Green Realms. Call it desperate hope. Call it hero's intuition. Call it wishful thinking. Whatever it is, less than a week ago, Kevin was clutching at straws, looking for direction, trying to figure out how to live as a hero undercover, in witness protection, as it were, and chafing at it, getting surly and moody, flaking out on his family duties. But now... Under terrible and personal circumstances, he is back in hero mode. As much as he might hate the situation, Kevin is back in his element. So, maybe this is how flow state works for heroes. Uh, flow can also be called being in the zone. It's a psychological concept, and I refuse to say the author's <laughs> the uh, the name of the gentleman who came up with uh, with flow i would absolutely mangle his last name but flow is a state when somebody is completely involved in an activity for its own sake 
it's a it's a state of um, peak performance, full involvement, energized focus. So if you've ever had a situation where you get so involved in an activity that you just lose all concept of time, maybe it feels like a, a relatively short period of time has passed, maybe half an hour, when in fact maybe an hour or two has passed, complete absorption in the task that results in a loss of your sense of time and space. Maybe, maybe when being in flow, the act of heroing, chance coincidences like this arise. Now, another possibility is that heroes, and I mean heroes at large, not just Kevin in this particular situation, are focal points for synchronicity. This would help explain the unlikely narrative coincidences that occur around heroes. Like in this case, the questing beast running across the path of Kevin and Miranda in the middle of the forest when they have no idea where they're going to next. Now, aside from being the kick-ass last studio album by the police, synchronicity is a concept developed by psychologist Carl Jung and describes the simultaneous occurrence of events that appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. Synchronicity is, uh, is closely related to coincidence. Both essentially are characterized by notable occurrences of two or more events at one time. Now, the difference is that coincidence is really seen as random, pure chance or luck, while synchronicity has hallmarks of deeper meaning, repetition, and resonance. In his book, um, to, to kind of give a, a good example of this, in his book Synchronicity, Jung tells the following story as an example of a synchronistic event. Jung was treating a patient who was proving psychologically inaccessible. She used ruthless rationality to shut down any roads to insights and meaning or self-exploration. And Jung stated that, uh, and now I'm just going to quote, after several, after several fruitless attempts to sweeten her rationalism with a somewhat more human understanding, I had to confine myself to the hope that something unexpected and irrational would turn up, something that would burst the intellectual retort into which she had sealed herself. Well, I was sitting opposite her one day with my back to the window, listening to her flow of rhetoric. She had an impressive dream the night before, in which someone had given her a golden scarab, a costly piece of jewelry. While she was still telling me this dream, I heard something behind me gently tapping on the window. I turned around, and saw that it was a fairly large flying insect that was knocking against the window pane from outside in the obvious attempt, effort, to get into the dark room. This seemed to me very strange. I opened the window immediately, and caught the insect in the air as it flew in. It was a scarabade beetle, or a common rose chauffeur, whose gold-green color most nearly resembles that of a golden scarab. I handed the beetle to my patient with the words, Here is your scarab. This experience punctured the desired hole in her rationalism and broke the ice of her intellectual resistance, and treatment could now be continued. So again, no real rational connection there, uh, but at the moment that the woman is talking about receiving a golden scarab in her dream, a golden scarab arrives 
and is trying to enter into the room where she's sitting. Um, when, when the series opens, Kevin is the hero denied. He has turned his back on his mission, on his very essence and being. He has stopped looking for the Fisher King. He has stopped proactively hunting nasties. Uh, with a nod to Luke Cage, he is Kevin Matchstick, hero not for hire. But here's the thing. Just because you turn your back on your calling doesn't mean your calling turns its back on you. So without actually going back and tabulating the events of the entire series, Synchronicity 1 could be considered Kevin's encounter with the Hop Squad in issue number 1. Synchronicity 2, meeting Joe Fat in a random bookstore in the psychology section, no fucking less. And now, the questing beast crosses Kevin's path at a moment when he is literally directionless. Another synchronicity. The excellent thing about synchronicity that we can uh, also see at times is a concept of acausal parallelism, where two completely separate things parallel each other in action, meaning uh, and so forth, you know, with no external apparent reason. Now, you can see this used when separate scenes occur that visually mirror each other in either artwork, action, or dialogue, and this can be used sometimes in comics and movies to segue from one scene or character to another, or to show a connection between characters and events, even though they might be separated by miles and have no idea of each other. Um, as, as a side note, you know, on our side of the comic page, we can look at this with the same cold rationality as Jung's aforementioned patient. You know, this coincidence is the sheer power of the author's narrative. And sure it is. But for the characters, these actions aren't just the arbitrary decisions of an all-powerful creator deity exercising that power to define their deterministic life experience. We have to take their experience at face value. Now, if you want a very amusing light read about the impact of authors on characters, read Red Shirts by John Scalzi, and that is a great fourth-wall-breaking Star Trek parody. But, uh, but here's one last thing about synchronicity and superheroes. Um, we allow for it. We read comics, we watch TV shows, movies, plays, you name it, and allow for random coincidences to move stories along constantly. And in some cases, we recognize underlying patterns and parallelisms well in advance of characters, um, you know, and, and even more explicit coincidences. Now, sometimes when a coincidence stretches plausibility too far, perhaps when a really outlandish coincidence happens without any underlying connective tissue of meaning, it literally just does nothing but push the plot forward conveniently, we tend to cry foul. We get shoved out of the narrative. We get shoved out of our suspension of disbelief. But the amazing thing is that thanks to skilled writers, artists, screenwriters, actors, all the people involved in these works of fiction, we regularly recognize and accept meaningful synchronicities in art while we wander blind and skeptical to it in our own lives. You know, if we can give fictional characters a little slack, maybe we could do the same for ourselves as we travel our own personal hero's journey. So, ultimately for heroes, inaction seems to push forces towards them to bring them back into the game, and action gives it even further opportunity to arise. Whatever the reason, 
Kevin turns off the highway to pursue the questing beast. And I think there might be a, a, a minor art snafu when he does this because an oncoming car is beeping at them as they cross lanes, but it looks for the life of me like that oncoming car is on the wrong side of the road. Anyways, Kevin turns off the highway to pursue the questing beast down a dirt forestry department access road that leads deeper into the forest. The truck is barely able to keep up with the swiftly racing beast, which approaches a tall locked fence blocking the path, and it just leaps right over it. Kevin doesn't even slow down, and in a moment deserving an award for best heroic use of a fast food drink, McDonald's from the look of it, he takes a straw from a cup and, <laughs> I don't know, he charges the liquid in it? Uh, because, like, like he has some supercharged spitball, he shoots the liquid at the gate, blasts the gates wide open, both doors just completely off their hinges, as Kevin makes a celebratory fist pump and Miranda cheers. Now, no doubt there will be some pissed-off forest ranger wondering what happened in a few days, but let's be honest, compared to the Avengers, the X-Men, Superman, pretty much any capes and cowls type hero, Kevin Matchstick's damages to buildings, monuments, etc. is pretty mild if virtually non-existent. I mean, you know, other than that thing with the fire hydrant in his old apartment and, um, you know, that time when a whole casino pretty much came down around his ears. So the, uh, the two drive deeper into the woods, and it doesn't take long for Miranda to worriedly observe that it's really, really dark in the woods. But Kevin assures her that she's safe with him, and they make their way into the woods on foot, and in the distance they see flickering lights in the woods. Kevin tells her that the lights they're seeing in the distance are what people used to call will-o'-wisp, or fairy flames, or... And you get stuck for a moment with this last one. A foxfire. If you'll recall, foxfire is what Wally would repeatedly call Kevin in Hero Defined. It was one of those things about Wally that Kevin initially took as a sign that the old guy was completely off of his nut. So what is a foxfire? Technically, foxfire is a bioluminescent fungus that feeds on rotting logs and it emanates a blue-green light. It looks amazing. During my research, I found an article on something called Mother Nature Network with some remarkable photos and videos of Foxfire. I'll include links in the podcast notes and on the site. Now, the will-o'-wisp, ghost lights, fairy fire, what have you, all have folktales related to them around the world, usually about souls doomed to wander the earth, who then lead travelers astray deep into marshes or bogs. But as for Wally calling Kevin by that name, there's a line by Wally in the aftermath of the showdown with Emile's golem in Hero Defined. Kirby and Joe are both gone. Kevin is dejected, but also taking responsibility for his situation. The round table has been broken, if indeed there ever truly was one to begin with. And Wally says that Kevin hasn't even begun. The foxfire is still but a spluttering glow. And later, when Kevin is bemoaning the loss of the original Excalibur, the shattered bat, 
Wally further educates our hero about the nature of power, of his power, telling him first of all that a bat is a pretty crude weapon anyway. If he wants to lead, he should get some goddamn finesse. The power was never in that decaying piece of wood. The power is Kevin. The power known to him as Excalibur is in fact only the burning echo of his very soul. Now there's no coincidence here that Foxfire is a luminescence that feeds on decaying wood, and Wally refers to the bat as a decaying piece of wood. This whole concept is a bit slippery for me to really nail down, but my feeling is along the lines of this. Kevin Matchstick is a raw potential for power. Matchstick, to come alight. In Hero Discovered, Kevin is dark, ignorant, unenlightened. In that book, the matchstick has been struck. It comes alight. In Hero Defined, Kevin is still struggling with his identity, his power. He's on completely the wrong path and leaning hard on his talisman, his weapon, Excalibur, really using it as a crutch. Kevin Foxfire evokes Kevin's concept of his power being entirely wrapped up in his bat, that decaying piece of wood that has the fluorescence of power coming off of it, not him. The destruction of the bat is the best thing to happen to him because it removes the crutch, limiting his understanding and use of the power inside of him. The true power of his weapon, call it Excalibur, call it whatever. Kevin and Miranda approach the fox fire, the fairy fire, and Miranda says that the air feels tingly, like a pattern. And then she asks Kevin if he can hear what she hears. It sounds like a river making music. And this is... This is really cool. As they approach the huge tree next to which the questing beast is sleeping, and it's a great double-page piece of art. The tree is literally leaking green, bubbling magic from its base. But Miranda's powers, her perception in this environment, in this sense, exceeds, or at least manifests differently than her father's. She can feel the magic, and she can hear the magic. So as I said earlier, maybe magic isn't green for Miranda. And maybe it is, but maybe it's more than that. Apparently, she senses this in a completely different way. But with Kevin, well, as always, seeing is believing. Kevin can see the phenomenon, the phenomena in front of them. And I I can't look at this tree without thinking of it as a a light side of the force opposite to the dark side force tree that Luke Skywalker must enter in The Empire Strikes Back. An Empire Luke must enter to face his shadow self. Here, well, here we'll have to wait and see. But Kevin is concerned that they will risk losing their way in the Green Realms, that they need to leave some kind of trail to find their way back. His thoughts, however, are interrupted by the return of the imp that he previously saw with the questing beast, intoning spookily and menacingly, Invocation, base betrayal, chaos and despair, inferno, Unleash Inferno. Now, I know that I've already given some not-so-subtle opinions about who I think the third mage will turn out to be. But I look at this little imp, the blue cloak that it has on, and I think about how Merlin was supposed to be the son of uh, the devil and a nun, a demon in a way of it in his own right, 
We also know that uh, the mage lives backwards in time across multiple incarnations. Now, it would be truly weird, but given the whole Mirth-Wally-Ut connection not completely out of possibility, perhaps for this imp to be the mage, spouting prophecy and advice in a manner too arcane, too hard to comprehend and decipher for Kevin to recognize what's going on? I mean, I highly doubt this, but that, that blue cloak he's, that this imp is wearing looks a lot like what Mirth used to wear. Now, for now, I'm going to really consider that this is really a bit of a red herring. I'm going to stick with my horse in this race, but it is fun to consider. Still, let's look at what it says. Base betrayal, chaos and despair. And despair. Now, that sounds a lot like what Kevin could be accused of in his focus away from the family that led to Magna being alone and vulnerable to the Incubus, leading to the current situation, which is certainly chaos and despair. And similar to last time, it says Inferno. Unleash Inferno. Maybe this isn't a threat as much as a directive. And, you know, it's funny when you think of it. The Archeron and the Styx are some of the rivers of hell, otherwise known in that famous work by Dante as Inferno. This may be a clue to what Kevin has to do to defeat the Umber Sprite, or, as we'll see in, a, see in an upcoming scene, there might be a completely different way to interpret uh, what the imp is saying here that ties into events happening on the other side of the chessboard. For now, Kevin takes this little imp at face value, mentioning that Isis had warned him that the questing beast can be just as easily leading to ruin and bad fortune to, uh, to those foolish enough to pursue it, uh, as well as, you know, bringing them anything that they're looking for. So he uh, he pulls a branch off a tree, lights it up as Miranda prepares to use the cloak to hide herself, and uh, and says he has a small problem to handle. And with that, we leave Kevin and Miranda for the rest of this uh, for the rest of this issue. And it's time to drop in on the Umber Sprite and the Gracklethorns assembled in the Umber Sprite's office. The Umber Sprite is addressing its beloved daughters. And let's be frank here, the Umber Sprite looks like hell. Hair is a mess, lips have gone gray, teeth are missing. Uh, it's just a disheveled mess. And as the Umber Sprite informs the thorns, the physical shell it inhabits can barely contain the villain's essence. And so the dark fountain has run dry. That dark, oily fluid, looking much in composition like the Umber Sprite's form at the end of Hero Defined, must actually... I don't know, is it some manner of the Umber Sprite's manifestation in this plane? It's unclear. But the Sprite says clearly that the fountain must run full again if it is to be restored to strength. Now, ever eager to support their mother, Alexi, who has been the most vocally supportive of the Umbra Sprite, um, the most certain of their inevitable victory, stridently affirms that they are hers to command, and as, as she states her devotion, the Umbra Sprite just blasts, use this, use a blast of magic to just throw her back into that still, dark, oily pool at the base of the fountain. Slowly, we see the Gracklethorn, well, I don't know, devoured 
by the dark fluid. As I mentioned in the last episode, it seemed to me likely that something like this might happen, that the Umbra Sprite would have to consume some kind of life force to regain its power. This is in line with some of Wagner's overarching use of different forms of vampirism in both Grendel and Mage. It also mirrors, in a way, the Umbra Sprite devouring a meal at the end of Hero Defined, when it was in its shade form. It is... It's worth noting that as the Gracklethorns witness Alexei's death throes and screams and, and eventual submission, they all have somewhat different reactions. Um, Olga and Sasha look on pretty much unmoved. Sophia is actually smiling. She is such a sadist. And Carol, well, Carol actually looks shocked and saddened at her sister's fate. Again, much like Emil in Hero Discovered, Carol is the only thorn that appears to really have an arc. Emil's power was is initiative. Carol's, I don't know. I think at least part of it might be independence. And beyond independence, as, as we can see evidenced in her reaction to this, and as we see when she first sees Kevin's power on display if not emotion, if not empathy, there's something else going on there. Once Alexei has been consumed by the dark pool, the fountain is running again, and the Umbra Sprite floats in front of the fountain, alight with this red magical fire, reminiscent of nothing so much as a flaming cross. And the transformation is complete. The Sprite's hair is perfect, skin smooth, lips red, a full set of perfect teeth. Heck, even the Umbra Sprite's tie, which had been askew, is firmly knotted again. Fucking magic. It's amazing. It's interesting to note that the Umbra Sprite, you know, while still smoking in this series, is not as obsessed with the smoking plant that had proved a key role in its downfall in The Hero Discovered. Also, in that first book, the Umbra Sprite grew bloated as the series progressed, where here we have seen the sprite's physical form instead become thin, brittle, and emaciated. So it's an interesting contrast um, as the two series move forward. And with red magical steam coming off of its eyes, the Umbra Sprite sends the Gracklethorns away as it prepares for the coming battle. Which, if you'll recall, it had some really interesting things to say about in the last issue about three coming together, that it believes that the mysterious presence that it had felt that put it into the, uh, that helped it become a mass of shadow snakes is drawn to Kevin Matchstick, uh, who is drawn to the Fisher King, and the three are going to be drawn to each other, and some big mofo battle or showdown is about to come together. Now, Maybe it's all going to come together that way, or not quite, but it's going to be really interesting to see. This brings us back to Magda and Hugo as they prepare to finally break out and make their way to the platform, again, a full mile above them in the pit. Magda gives Hugo one last magical item, glasses that let you see creatures or items that would be otherwise invisible. Hugo is in his glory. He is ready for this adventure, but his mom tempers his enthusiasm, reminding him to be careful that the aim here is not to run into any action. Remember a few issues back when Magda and Hugo were first taken prisoner? When Sasha delivers Hugo to Magda, 
The Gracklethorn tells Magda that their mother treasures them similarly to how Magda treasures her children. I think we've just seen how far the Umbra Sprite's motherly caring extends. And Magda's motherly reminders to Hugo act as a counterpoint to the viciously self-interested Umbra Sprite's manner of so-called care. To the Umbra Sprite, the thorns, similar to the Grackleflints, are merely tools, valuable in their use and capability, but worthy of recognition only inasmuch when they help further the Sprite's plans. Um, so as they get ready to take on the pit, it's a neat touch of world building that Magda can see through Cleo's eyes. So she lets Hugo know that she will be watching him the entire way through the familiar's eyes. Again, with his well-being in mind under this risky, risky endeavor, she has a plan in case he should face anything dangerous. She tells him just simply fall, and she will catch him with the drifting spell. And off Hugo goes, finally making it to the platform. And Hugo's exclamation on the next page really is perfect for describing this page. Awesome. Magda flying up the shaft to join Hugo on the platform, riding up via magical umbrella trailing pink magic bubbles. As Hugo says, she is the coolest mom ever. This whole issue really gives us a glimpse, a look into Magda the Witch, the versatile ways she uses her magic to prepare them for this adventure, her planning for the mission. It is great to see her flex her muscles in this issue. But before they can get too comfortable, or even figure out how to get through the door, eight weird shaggy worms with skull faces emerge floating through the walls and surround Magda, Hugo, and Cleo, where they stand on the platform. And like Magda, I have no idea what these are, but they look like they're straight out of some Korean horror flick. And there we have it. The action continues to speed up, the stakes continue to get higher, as we speed close to the close of this story. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I had reached out to a wide variety of comic professionals, review, blah, 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 comic professionals, reviewers, and fans to share what they would say to people if they were going to recommend that they read Mage. Now, their replies have been collected in an article titled Eight Reasons You Should Be Reading Matt Wagner's Mage. However, I'd also included some bonus questions, and those answers will only be shared in the podcast because they're really beside the point of the article and they can get really spoilery. My first question was, who is your favorite mage character and why? My next optional question was in the spirit of Matt's Mage Moments Challenge, the responses which are currently being printed in the incantations column at the end of each issue. In this case, my question was, what is your favorite moment or event in Mage and why? So I'm just going to go through, tell you a little, about, a little bit about each respondent and share with you their responses. The first response is from Ben Granoff. Ben describes himself as a cartoonist and educator who is very famous in his own apartment. Now, you can check out his work at picturesforstories.com, where, among other works, you can find his comic adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. About his favorite character, Ben says, I think Joe Fat and Kirby Hero were fantastic characters who really helped push the conceit and vision of the book to places it hadn't been before. 
super cool. As for his favorite moment, Ben cites, Kevin's reaction when he overloads and blows up the bat is the first and most powerful memory that comes to mind. There is always a price. Next, W.B. West, a 25-year-plus schoolteacher who finds himself raising two teenage mage fans, says of his favorite character choice, I'm a formerly cynical middle-aged guy with a family. My life has paralleled Kevin Matchsticks at the time each of the three mage stories was released, without the kick-ass action and wondrous mythology. It's no wonder the character speaks to me. My daughter prefers mirth. As for his favorite mage moment, quote, The cop-out answer is to say that there are too many from which to choose. I won't do that, but Wagner has a way of one-upping himself. I'm not going to answer this until I get to read the rest of Mage the Hero Denied. Mage fan George E. Warner is a letterer and pre-production artist in South Williamsport, uh, Pennsylvania. Regarding a favorite character, George says, Mirth, of course, because he is a pragmatist and a smartass, along with being a guiding force in Kevin's life. Not to mention the fact that his was the power that tied all of the loose ends together. As for his favorite mage moment... George references a letter of his published in issue number 15 of Mage the Hero Discovered, where he refers to a page in a Justice Machine miniseries. as a single page, an in-house ad for Mage number 13. He says he could go on about why it invoked the feelings in him that it did, but that's special and he'd like to keep it that way. If magic is green then that single page surely is the greenest magic of all. Thank you, Matt, and keep it coming. Matt's reply was as follows, Don't know what chord that hit for you, George, but I felt it too. I'll do a little bit of research. I think I know the page that uh, George is speaking about, but I'll do some digging into back issues and see if I can find a copy of that to put out there on, on Instagram. The next, uh, the next response is from Tim Gillick, a cosplay photographer, uh, web designer, devoted husband, geek dad, and budding comic book writer. Tim is another fan of Mirth, saying, I love Mirth because of his look, that 80s hair, and the bandaged legs. Plus, he's a great mentor, letting Kevin work through his struggles mostly on his own, but still there to assist when needed. And the World Mage's second incarnation, Wally, is a great humorous addition in Defined. The next respondent is someone whom I've mentioned on multiple podcast episodes. Michael Penkis has been writing thoughtful reviews of The Hero Denied. He's also written about two dozen short stories and a mystery novel, Mistress Bunny and the Cancelled Client. Now you can find out more about him at Michael Penkis. That's M-I-C-H. A-E-L-P-E-N-K-A-S dot com. Now, regarding favorite characters, he says, Probably Mirth. Unlike so many mentor archetype figures, Mirth is a more playful character living up to his name. Other mentors seem focused on duty and obligation, while Mirth has a genuine love for living that makes his sacrifices far more meaningful. As for favorite moments, one of the best was in issue 15 of the first series. Hero discovered, when the Umbrous Bright is defeated not by Kevin or Mirth, but through a combination of gluttony and betrayal. After the build-up of the whole series, 
it nicely subverts the Kevin versus Umbra Sprite moment that the reader was expecting. At the same time, Matt Wagner has slowly established the characters in a way that the ending made sense. The concept of evil turning on itself is repeated at the end of Hero Defined and is already playing out again as of issue 11 in Hero Denied. James Doe describes himself as a longtime comics reader, collector, lover, and possibly biggest Grendel fan in the universe. He takes a break from Grendel, though, to let us know that regarding a favorite character, quote, I'm going to have to go with Kevin here, not just because he's the main character. We get to see him from the beginning, a troubled young man, and we see him thrown into this maelstrom of adventure. All the friends and enemies he makes along the way, how it changes him over many years and series into the hero he is now. As for his favorite moment, there are so many. Seeing Kevin at the beginning of Hero Denied as a husband and a father, with all that he's been through, all the people he's met and lost along the way, seeing that Kevin found love and was able to hold on to it might be my favorite moment. Or when Kevin encounters the succubus in Hero Discovered, who can resist a punk rock girl? Now, these next comments come from Jen Delari. Jen was featured in one of the Hero Denied Incantations letter columns and is the author of two webcomics, A Wish for Wings and Closet Space, which you can find at dolari, D-O-L-A-R-I dot net. Her bio reads, Five mainframes in an underground bunker simulating life experiences of a human. It's not going well. Of her favorite character... Jen says, I was always a fan of Edsel. Tough, brash, street smart, and totally on board with her role as the Lady of the Lake, even though she hides it from Kevin. A modern-day woman, at peace with her ancient origins, and totally herself. Jen's favorite moment? Any scene where Kevin's faced with his fear of heights, especially when he makes the final jump over to the Sticks building. I'm paraphrasing, but I believe it's Mirth who says, If you miss, you'd only hurt the sidewalk. But you should be fine. In fact, try not to overshoot. Mage fan, maker, and cosplayer Steve Fritzinger, who was a guest on episode 10 of the podcast, also wrote in to share his favorite character. He says, Besides Kevin, of course, mine is Sean Knight, a ghost who doesn't realize he's dead years before the sixth sense. He's noble, brave, and strong. Fittingly, Steve says his favorite moment is Sean's fight with the dragon, quoting the following dialogue, What are you? More frightening than you. Comic creator and artist John K. Snyder III was kind enough to share his thoughts as well. Now, regarding favorite characters, he says, Of the supporting cast, of course, I'm partial to John J. Strider Prester John, since he's apparently partially based on yours truly. But I always liked Edsel, and enjoyed the annoying Redcaps. The spectacular takedown of that group in the recent run, issue number 9, is one of the highlights of the series for me. His favorite mage moment? As I've always told Matt, my favorite moment in the series is the penultimate issue, number 14, to the first arc of the books. The long discussion between Mirth and Kevin, I really thought, I thought that really set the series apart, to have that sort of pause before the big battle. 
it brought an ever-deeper sense of character and a sort of reality to the saga. Now, John Snyder just recently completed and released uh, a graphic novel adaptation of crime fiction writer Lawrence Block's noir classic novel, Eight Million Ways to Die. One reviewer calls it a gritty, dark, superb adaptation. I've placed a link to it in the um, in the show notes on the podcast and on the website. Check it out. Manus Dunbar from the Can I Thwip It podcast also casts a vote for Mirth as his favorite character. And as for his favorite mage moment, he shares the fight with the mistworm at the end of Discovered. Also, the end of Defined, when the Umbra Sprite comes back and is tweaking on Emil. Honestly, like the last four issues of Defined are so good. The prelude issue when he meets Joe Fat is also so tight. Now, you can find Manus with his podcast and co-host Eli on multiple podcast apps at Can I Thwip It? He's also got some tight tracks on Apple Music. Last of all, Jamie Ashby, who describes himself as a musician, author, artist, entertainment enthusiast, and dilettante, has this to say about a favorite character. I can't choose just one. While Kevin is obviously who we're meant to be drawn to, no pun intended, the cast of characters, both heroes and villains, is woven upon such a rich tapestry that some aspects of the stories are better for Kevin's periodic absences. The people drawn into Kevin's sphere of influence are introduced fully formed as they're based on people from Matt Wagner's life, and it would be fascinating to see them before their entrances and after their exits. As for his favorite mage event, he gives a spoiler alert. The two defining moments for me have yet to be matched in the subsequent series thus far are Edsel's death while protecting Kevin, and Kevin's reluctant acceptance that he is indeed the Pendragon Reborn. The moment he takes up the bat still gives me chills, and the shattering of all he thinks to be his reality as he gazes upon Edsel's body is heart-wrenching. Now, these are just the comments from the respondents who answered the optional questions. The article features even more people sharing their reasons why someone should pick up Mage. And, yes, lest I forget, one listener shared his thoughts on audio, calling into the podcast's voicemail. I'm going to share his entire message. This is from C.W. Balance, who describes himself as just an avid geek trying to do the best I can for my wife and four kids, who are a different kind of magic. Hello, Kevin. This is C.W. Balance from North Carolina. Uh, just calling to give you my reasons why someone should read Mage uh, in its entirety. I believe that the series should be basically taken care of from start to finish. I started in the middle, uh, now that we have an ending, and uh, it grabbed me and I went back and read the earlier stuff and was absolutely just gobsmacked by uh, the greatness of Kevin's journey from beginning to end. And uh, probably one of the best reasons to read Mage is because it is unlike anything else in comics as a medium. And it was one of my first exposures to comics being something more than the standard superhero, supervillain tropes and uh, going into deep roots of mythology and expounding on that. Uh, the artwork 
the absolutely gorgeous artwork by Matt and uh, his masterful storytelling of Kevin's journey and, and the inclusion of Brennan with uh, Hero Denied with the coloring has just made everything splash that much more. I, I feel like magic is a little bit greener than it used to be with Brennan doing the colors, um, which is fantastic. And it takes my breath away every every single issue. Uh, that last uh, couple issues ago, when uh, Magda created the familiar, just that last page, full panel with this beautiful purple winged cat. The the detail in in that animal itself, so loose and yet so sharp and perfect and outwardly defined, with such blasting colors. Uh, such a radiant purple to kind of show Magda's shade of magic, if you will, is, uh, just a breathtaking spot to me. Um, it always touches me because it is the story of a man. And if you've ever been one of those people who's ever been kind of lost in your life, this is kind of one of those situations where the fiction can speak to you just to let you know that, you know, your journey takes many roads and takes many forms and there are many people that you will meet and you're not done until you're done. And Kevin, you know, goes through his journey and kind of has to learn that the hard way. It's, it's action. It's beautiful action pages, fantastic action pages, uh, menacing, nefarious and over overviewing villains. Uh, Kevin pulling himself up to a challenge so you have stalwart heroes of, of greatness and not necessarily virtue because, you know, he's not altogether innocent, but he's definitely kind of wild eyed and lost on part of his, on, on a good portion of his journey. Um, because that's kind of the point is that everybody kind of has to find their own way. And Kevin often times earlier was just looking for someone to tell him what to do. And then he had to go out and try to do things on his own. And that's basically what, you know, how we are as people. And, uh, I feel like we've been very fortunate that Matt Wagner was nice enough to share this story with us because it's almost like he's, you know, in a roundabout allegorical autobiographical kind of way, as he likes to kind of put it, uh, sharing part of his life with us. And hoping that we get something out of it, whether it's in ta- uh, entertainment, some meaning of life stuff, possibly a little bit of both. But it's a fantastic read with beautiful, beautiful art, a fantastic message in terms of perseverance in your own life and the ongoing struggle of good against evil, no matter how sometimes black and white that may seem, as opposed to shades of gray. Or vice versa, because it's not always cut and dry. And sometimes you have to pay for your mistakes, and sometimes you have to make mistakes in order to learn. And I think that's probably that might be the biggest lesson that you need to you could take out of Mage. Sometimes you have to make mistakes in order to learn, but you will be better for it as long as you're open to learning from the mistakes that you've made. That's it. Yeah, that's the big one. So. uh Thanks for considering my opinion. Um, and I, again, I, I greatly appreciate it and uh, hope to hear back from you soon. And I, I love the podcast. And thanks for putting it out there just in time for the final chapter. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good one, man. 
All right, great. Thanks for sharing that, CW. And like I said, everybody, time is running out. Share the article, share the comic, spread the word. Last of all, I want to share uh, something that John Petz wrote into the podcast with the following thoughts about the series. So this has nothing to do with the article or the request for stories that I reached out with. Uh, This was just some unsolicited listener feedback. Um, John starts off saying, I just discovered your podcast. So first of all, thanks for making it and sharing your thoughts on this comic. And uh, Mage has been a strange work for me. Having heard good things about The Hero Discovered, I was let down by it, especially the early issues, as they were reprinted in smaller volumes. However, I stuck with it, and not only did Matt Wagner's writing improve, but so did the art. It must have been quite a shock for fans of the original to see the more cartoony look of Defined. I appreciate both, though the smoother work of the original was more to my liking, though I was disappointed by the Umbra Sprite and the lack of confrontation between him and Kevin. I returned to the first two Mage series periodically and realized it's more enjoyable in collected form. Moving on, I'm glad you compliment the coloring in Denied, as it's quite good, and for my taste, the art is now more of a smooth mix between the previous volumes. Still a bit cartoony, but perhaps there's a thicker inking involved or something, but it's pleased, but it's really pleasing to the eye. I like the family dynamic. Kevin and Magda as concerned and loving parents while their children act realistically, interested, frightened, overconfident at times. It's interesting and realistic. Good point about the Umbra Sprite now being female, or female, as a parallel to Magda's important role in the story. The scene with Joe Fat seemed quite true to life. Sometimes people drift out of your life, and you want things to return to how they were, but they never quite can. If this were a realistic drama, I think that would be the end of the character in the story, and it just may be, but I wouldn't be surprised if he returned. Unless the last four issues are jam-packed, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time to get into the Fisher King and the Umbra Sprite, let alone the guy riding the motorcycle with the hounds. I feel Matt has gone for a very sparse sort of storytelling, even down to Kevin's purpose. Enough time has passed for the character to have two children, but he's drifting along, It all feels a bit anticlimactic, in a way, though. I also think that's part of the comic's appeal, this mixture of a middle-aged man's meandering life and the magical. I suppose it's the self-imposed limitations for why we don't ever get much of what the Ember Sprite does or how it impacts the world in a direct fashion. I kind of think it's a shame Matt didn't say, screw the 15-issue limitation and really explore the world. I could have handled more domestic scenes with Kevin, interactions with the PTA, and so forth. I think it would have been neat to see Matt's take on this, even if it had been covered to a degree in TV shows like Buffy. It's interesting to me that it seems like one of the few positive portrayals of marriage in comics. No soap opera angst, nor bitter acrimony and divorce, but a relatively stable and loving union and family. Along those lines, I can appreciate the differences in the storylines. Kevin with his bat charging off into the unknown, Magda having to use her wits and intelligence to survive the polite prison of the Umbra Sprite's daughters, Kevin as star athlete and Magda as cheerleader, one is an overt battle, the other a more polite social background, to a degree. In other words, Kevin needs to bash his opponents, while up to now 
Magda has had to outthink them. I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin defeats the Ember Sprite and has to sacrifice himself in some way to save Hugo from remaining trapped in the fairy realms by the end. I look forward to the rest of your podcasts. I could be wrong, but it seems like Mage is an under-the-radar comic. Doesn't quite seem that popular at the moment, but I think it will be a work readers will be enjoying over the years. All right. Well, hey, John, thanks for sharing your thoughts. I imagine that, especially for newer readers coming into reading Mage for the first time, without the context that they're looking at one of a comic creator's earliest works, uh, the artwork might take them by surprise. And yes, to the point you mentioned, the change in the style of artwork in Hero Defined from Hero Discovered did cause quite a fan reaction when the second series was released. I was definitely one of the fans taken off guard by the change in approach, but as Matt has said in multiple interviews, the work is all clearly that of the same artist. And I think when you look at the series as a whole, it really holds together quite well. Um, The one thing I do feel is a shame is the loss of the feel of the original airbrushed colors in the reprinted collections. There quite simply hasn't been anything quite like the artwork and coloring in the original publication of uh, The Hero Discovered and in, you know, Mage Book, the Starblaze edition, some of the hardcover editions. As much as I love the new collected editions, they simply don't have the same range of color and texture of the original publications. And that's too bad. I mean, what was being done with the colors and the shades uh, was really a testament to just how far Matt was pushing the medium in that series. Regarding Kevin and the Umbra Sprite not having a showdown in uh, Hero Discovered, I think it's clear by now there's a larger story at play against which Kevin, you know, not battling either the Umbra Sprite in Discovered nor battling Emile or the Umbra Sprite in Defined is an important part of the overall tale. And, uh, you know, one of the uh, contributors that I quoted earlier, I think had some great thoughts about, about that as well. I do agree that the pacing of the series does make the end seem like, you know, a lot has to happen all at once. And, hey, it would be great to see the issue run go beyond 15 issues. Uh, that's that's just a greedy fan desire. But again, I, I believe that when taken as a whole, a lot of that's going to be resolved. You know, frankly, looking back on it as I have, um, you know, doing this podcast, there are times where the pacing and discovered and defined were not exactly much faster or much more urgent. Um, although by virtue of the stories being told, they may have seemed to have had more action or drama just given, uh, you know, the somewhat larger cast, for instance, in Defined. I like your point that this seems like one of the few positive portrayals of marriage in comics. You know, not a soap opera angst nor bitter acrimony and divorce, but a relatively stable and lovely, loving union and family. Uh, Even with the tension between Magda and Kevin at times, this is a family. It's a loving family looking out for each other. And I like that the current issues, by virtue of the imprisonment aspect, have, (laughs) um, oddly enough, imprisonment has released Magda from being almost in that cheerleader or strictly supporting role to Kevin. Uh, Again, you know, really letting her letting her shine and be her own person. Um, you know, I just, I guess if there's one thing I, I look forward to as this closes out is getting to see more of the kids 
as characters because they spent a fair amount of time, you know, even just growing up in the inter in the year or so of story time from when this series started, uh, their their involvement was a was a little bit less in the earlier issues. There are certain issues where they're completely not present at all. So splitting them up into these two different teams has really given us a chance to to discover the kids as characters in their own right. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that continue uh, throughout the rest of this throughout the rest of this series as we come to a close. So uh, thanks, John, for sharing your thoughts. It'd be great to hear from you when the series is wrapped. And that's it. Uh, visit the website or go to the show notes for links to. Um, I'll try to find some various reviews to link to, as well as to the websites associated with the various contributors who I mentioned earlier. Uh, the um, the Mother Nature News, I believe, is the name of the site, where you can find some amazing photos and videos of Foxfire. That link will be either on the website or um, in the podcast notes. And in a few days, hopefully, I'll have uh, some images on Instagram related to uh, some of the things that were discussed in this episode. That's it. That's this week's episode of the Mage, the Hero Described podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to uh, join me next time when I'll review issue number 12. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, uh, images, as I discussed, uh, that are linked over at Instagram, at Mage Hero Described on Instagram. You can even subscribe for updates and notices about when new podcasts or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. Thanks. And until next time, stay excellent.